The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. In times of fear, the only response is love, love and compassion. Early yesterday, I'd gone to visit a client, a CEO. We'd sat in his office surrounded by thousands of square feet of space, devoid of people. He'd sent everyone home, all 600 employees, to avoid the spreading contagion. It was surreal. After, I visited another client, another CEO, and after our session, we'd gathered his whole team and I read from my book. I read the opening of the equanimity chapter, in which I speak about the point of riding the roller coaster not being to become good at riding roller coasters, but to learn how not to board the ride at all. The truth is, in my nearly 57 years, I've never lived through such a combination of pandemic, a nauseatingly volatile stock market, a bizarrely growing economy, and increasingly unsteady hands on the reins of government. This roller coaster is new, and so I can't say with certainty what will happen next. But I can say, love wins, not only over hate, but over our own fears. I know this from the bottom of my toes to the top of my ever-graying, ever-thinning head. Love wins. Love your clients. Love each other. Love your loved ones and friends. Love yourselves. This too shall pass. That was the voice of Jerry Colonna, CEO of Reboot a legendary leadership development and coaching company. And he was reading from a note that he sent his staff this week, addressing something a lot of us are feeling, afraid. Today, I wanted to bring you a special emergency episode of The Anxious Achiever, because I'm so anxious and I thought you might be too. It's all around, from the literally empty shelves at our local grocery stores to the plunging stock markets to disease progression graphs that look like the face of a very steep mountain, to the fear that the people we love will die. It's a lot. We are scared. And yet we still have to work. We still have to parent. We still need to pretend things are somewhat normal. So stay with me. We're going to feel some feelings. And hopefully afterwards, we will all emerge a little less anxious with some new tools we can use when the feelings are too much. While my strongest hope is that we all emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic unscathed, we just don't know. No matter what, we will need to be resilient, present, and strong. We'll hear from my friend Dr. Camille Preston, who's a business psychologist, a little later in the show. But first, my conversation with Jerry. My husband said this to me last night. We were talking about this episode, and, and, and he said, you know, I'm scared. I can't let all the people who depend on me see that. Mm-hmm. And that really touched me because because I'm just a hot mess and yeah. scared and telling everyone. Yeah. 
he felt like he couldn't. And and I'm curious for you and 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 all your team if if you can lead with love but also feel scared and where that fear goes. Right. So this is a really important message for anybody who feels responsible for other people, whether it's parents feeling responsible for their children or lovers being feeling responsible for their loved ones or leaders feeling responsible for their colleagues. Everyone around you can feel your fear. Mm. Denying that you're afraid actually makes the fear worse. It undermines trust. And we need trust to get through this together. And so what I would say to your husband is, and what I tried to do all week and have been trying to do in my seat as a leader, was explain specifically what it is that is difficult for me. In this case, it's uncertainty. When I know what the next moves are, I'm a chess player, right? I love knowing the next five moves. I don't like not knowing what the next five moves are, and I have no idea what the moves are going to be next week. That's disturbing. And they're so far out of our control. I mean, it's, we have no control. We have, well, that I, I, I think that's your anxiety speaking. Okay, there are things that we do have control over. But the phrase, we have no control, implies that we have zero control over anything. And that's mm-hmm. not true. Mm-hmm. We have right. control over how we love someone. We have control over how we respond. We have control. You know, last night, I'm staying in the city. I'm at my daughter's apartment. Uh, I went out for dinner. went to the Chinese restaurant. It was empty. I could mm-hmm. feel the racism. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's just absurd. I remember September 12, 2001. I was freaked out like the rest of us. I was working at J.P. Morgan at the time, and I remember sending a note out to the entire team in the New York office. And I said, I'm going to Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn for dinner tonight. Who (laughs) wants to join me? It's on me. Tell, non, tell non-New Yorkers what that means. Atlantic Avenue is the heart of the Arab community in New York. I'm with you, but, but I want to finish. Sorry, I, I got us off track there mm-hmm. um, with the control question, where you're putting your fear, because I, I know you must have some fear. Absolutely. I mean, just before we came on the recording, my daughter's texting me and, hey, Dad, do you have corona? It's like, no. <laughs> but... <laughs> but but I did have flu three or four weeks ago, uh, right? So she's not, yeah. it's not without base. It's not without merit to be concerned. This notion around how, what do we do with the fears? What your real question is. Yeah. And, you know, a friend of mine tweeted out this morning, a Buddhist friend of mine, he said, hey, every Dharma, you know, all my Dharma friends, remember, this is what we've been training for all of our life. How do we confront <laughs> fear, uncertainty, sickness, death? Oh, right. What do you think I've been putting my butt on the cushion for for 16 years other than for these moments? And what true Dharma has taught me, what every wisdom tradition has taught, is that in the face of fear, we hold ourselves steady. Like my favorite teacher, Pema Chodron, would say, you sit like a mountain in the midst of of a hurricane. Now your question, the follow on question should be, what do you do internally 
when the mm-hmm. ma- when the hurricane feels like it's internal. What you do is you acknowledge that fear to yourself. You parse out what is probable from what is possible. It is possible that we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. It's not probable. It is possible and even likely that many people that we love and care about will get sick and struggle and may pass away. That is entirely possible. But it is not probable that everybody and everything that we love and hold dear will disappear. I want to zero in a little on the other side of this coin because I think that um, I was thinking about your CEO in his empty office mm-hmm. and the loneliness he may have felt, mm-hmm. uh, the the sense of, I built this all. Is this all going to go away like a house of cards mm-hmm. feeling the, you know, uh, my whole team is, is going remote. Mm-hmm. Are, are we, can we do this? Are we all going to hate each other? Is everything, you know, mm-hmm. um, I want to talk about money and I want to talk about work mm-hmm. because I feel like a real jerk going around. I have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in business this week in my small business. Mm-hmm. Many people I know are in the same boat. I feel like a real jerk if I say that aloud. <laughs> Why? You know, in the face of such big life and death stuff. Mm. But but these feelings are real. And, and I want to hear, I want you to talk about how those of us who have have worked hard towards a work goal manage all the anxiety and all the uncertainty from your well, CEO well, sitting Mara, in his empty I, office. I, I'm going to interrupt all you. All of us, I'm please. Gonna, uh, and I'm going to come right back to you. And I just want to make the observation that I, what I feel you doing is exacerbating the pain of the uncertainty with a whole bunch of pointless and needless comparison and shoulds. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, here's a truth. The fact that someone else is suffering, quote unquote, more than us does not make our existential suffering more or less. The fact that this person over here has joy doesn't mean you cannot have joy. And in a similar fashion, the fact that they are in pain or they are in suffering doesn't make your pain or your suffering any less so. It's only when we tell ourselves that our feelings are supposed to be one way or the other that we alter the course and the trajectory of those feelings. Yeah. Now, why do we as a species tend to do that? We do that because what we want to stay clear of is becoming isolated in our pain. Mm -hmm. We want to stay clear of seeing a kind of woe is me point of view where we are unable to see the other person. That's really the, the message, the lesson of, hey, eat your peas, there are starving children in X country. Right, or I lost X, but this person who has a small business and is living hand to mouth. Yeah, you know, there, I but a, for the grace of God, they're go, worse, right. go I, right? But and, you know, and actually, what I was going to say, Jerry, is actually, you know, as much as I feel like a jerk saying that, there is some sense of camaraderie yes. right now in sharing. We're all losing clients. Yes. We're all, you know, all my friends who are who who speak for a living yes. have lost half a year's revenue. Like, it's gone away like that. Absolutely, absolutely. So here's a story from the Buddha. A woman who has lost her child, her child has died, goes to the Buddha for comfort. And the Buddha says to her, 
I want you to go to every house in the village and collect from that house a mustard seed from every house that has not experienced suffering or loss. She comes back empty-handed. Now, the point of that message, is of mm. that story, is not that the Buddha is chastising her for her pain and suffering, but to teach her the, the, the connectedness from us all being in this together. And mm-hmm. through the connectedness, we get to experience compassion. And compassion heals both ways. Empathy is a medicine. Compassion is a medicine for the entire world. For loneliness, certainly. When, and when we get stuck in the loneliness, when we get stuck in the aloneness in our suffering, we cut ourselves off from the most powerful medicine we've ever invented, which is compassion. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So to get nitty gritty for a sec, you have your CEOs, your clients who are going and now, instead of sitting with their teams, they're slacking their teams, mm-hmm. right? They're remote. How do you convey a sense of community and indeed compassion and empathy remotely. What's your advice to all of us who have been suddenly and radically shifted into remote work and yet are seeking community, are seeking that compassion and empathy? Well, I, you know, I, I hadn't really thought of it until you were just speaking now. But um, the fact is, my little company is 100% remote. Mine too, and for so, 11 years. Which, which, for 11 years. So how, how have you built friendship and community within that company across 11 years? What did you do, Maura? I, I love to say that we are all ourselves. And, and how we do you stay allow connected? each other. We talk on the phone. All the time. And we get together all the time. Okay. So <laughs> there's your answer. <laughs> but we're used to it. We've had 11 years to fail, to practice, to see what works. And not everyone stays, by the way. Right, right. That's true. But my point is just this. In these times where we sit there and we say, well, what should we do? Well, what have you been doing? Oh, right. Yeah. 
I remain connected. I was just texting with my daughter. Um, you know, uh, uh, I was emailing with a client. I was on video chat this morning to London, to a client. The tools are there, even in our isolation, our medically induced isolation. You know, you, you and I, this feels a relatively intimate conversation. You and I have never met face to face. I know. And yet here we are. I, I'm part of a listserv of women entrepreneurs that is the best community right now I could imagine. And we are just emailing all day. Right, right. You know, I, I was saying this morning that one of the challenges of social media these days is that it exacerbates all of those tough emotions, the fear, mm. the outrage, the, can you believe this? Oh my God. And if I see one more tweet with a finger pointing down saying this, you know, mm. <laughs> it's like, stop, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> Everybody just chill out. <laughs> but you know, the other thing that I've begun noticing and maybe because I'm sharing it, like yesterday I shared a poem. Oh, you would love my husband. Yeah. <laughs> he too has been posting poetry. Yeah. It's, a, it's okay. We're going to be okay. What are you telling your clients and friends and colleagues who had um, who had deals in play, mm-hmm. who had, you know, I have friends who run nonprofits mm-hmm. whose donors have Pulled back. said, you know, maybe it's not a good time. People who have nonprofits who've had galas planned where they do a huge amount of fundraising, people looking to switch jobs. Mm-hmm. We we all were feeling perhaps that 2020 was going to be a little bit of a reset. Yes. It was the we? beginning of the yes. year. <laughs> and now it's like. Yeah. yeah, we were feeling that, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. How do you sit with those uncomfortable feelings that like I was so close and now it's all been taken away? Whether that's true or not, a lot of people, myself included, are feeling that way. You, you sit, you know, every wisdom tradition has taught us this. You sit with those uncomfortable feelings precisely the way you would sit with every set of uncomfortable feelings, including the uncomfortable feelings around death or the uncomfortable feelings around sadness or the uncomfortable feelings of the loss of a relationship or the uncomfortable feelings of the loss of a job or an income. You sit, you stay with those feelings, you acknowledge their pain. You do not pretend that you are some gritty, unfeeling human, because such things don't really exist. You welcome that pain in so that you can let yourself go from it. Mm. And I got it. This is easier said than done. Because the minute the anxious thought leaves, another one pulls right into the train station. But one of the most important teachings in Buddhism is that we watch our mind. We watch our thoughts arrive and depart from the train station. And so anxiety is the main train coming in. Hello, anxiety. (sighs) See you later. The truth is, I cannot tell you what the market's going to do tomorrow. So you are checking. Are you? Are you of course. Actually, this is this is this is what I want to ask you because you're such a wise person. Well, you, you're on social media. Yeah. Are, are you checking your stock portfolio? Are are you? And and because I don't check my portfolio. You just check the market. I check the market, and I kind of know where I am relative to the market, and it sucks. Yeah. 
And, you know, I've had nine speaking engagements canceled. Oh, my God. For the next two months. You know, um, I look at I look at the benefit. I look at the calendar. I go, my God, I've got I don't have to get on a flight in April. <laughs> That's the first <laughs> time in four years. Has that ever happened? Yeah. <laughs> right. I look at at uh, the opportunities that it presents. I can get back to doing some hiking. Now, I'm in a privileged position. I get it. I have a little bit of safety valve. Okay. And I do extend that compassion to everybody that um, doesn't have that. You know, uh, my youngest son is a remote worker for for a tech company. And, uh, you know, he came to my office the other day because he was working from here. And he had gone to the allergist earlier in the day. And they were talking about the fact that, you know, he got to work remotely. And she looked up, the receptionist looked up at him and said, I don't. Exactly. And that's true for a lot of folks. And so we can shy away from the disparity and and the inequity that it presents and pretend that it's not uncomfortable. Or we can lean into it and extend from our heart compassion. My last question for you is I, I I want you to provide the audience, just like you provided us, that wonderful image of the anxiety train. Mm. I think that many people out there, you know, we're, we're so flooded with information. Mm. It's, it's really hard. And, and we can't hide under a rock as much as we would want to. Mm. You know, you're, you're sort of, you're getting your groove. You might be doing some work. You might be in an okay place. And then a, a news flash comes across your phone or, mm. you know, you, you turn on Twitter and, and it's all horrible. Mm. What is your practice for getting recentered from that sort of attack well, of if bad you can't, news and anxiety? Well, if you can't limit your exposure, which, of mm-hmm. course, you can. You have control. It's true. <laughs> anxiety tells you you can't, but you can. But if you find that you can't, I would bring, bring your attention back to something the brilliant and wonderful Byron Katie would say um, really about the negative thoughts that arise oftentimes around ourselves. And to me, this question uh, is really, really powerful in these moments. You look at that piece of information and you really go quiet and you say, is it true? Mm. Because more often than not, your amygdala is in hijack mode yeah, and your amygdala cannot discern what's true and what's not. The amygdala is tuned to presume that that coil in the corner of the room is a snake and not a rope because it's better safe than sorry. When you ask yourself the question, is it true or is it plausible? Not is it possible, right? Very, very different words. You engage your prefrontal cortex, which is your higher post-evolutionary brain and you get to say to yourself wait a minute it's probably not true that well it could be dr anthony fauci from cd you know or from nih and then that you have to say yes that that is true that could be true it could be true that news that news can be difficult Mm -hmm. i'm less concerned about the actual news than i am about the rumors Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What makes pandemic into panic is rumors, right? Or what, what makes market volatility so difficult is panic. Every single investor will tell you 
that panic responses to market fluctuations don't lead to good results. <laughs> same thing with leadership. Same thing with parenting. This spring is not turning out the way we thought it was going to be. That is true. But we have no idea what June is going to bring. Jerry, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing this work. I think what you're doing is really important. And the more we can sort of hang out with each other and take care of each other the way you are here, the better we're all going to be. So that's one perspective from Jerry Colonna. We also wanted to check in with Dr. Camille Preston, who's a business psychologist. Camille is going to share her advice on how to approach these scary times with a growth mindset. Hi, Camille. Hello. So I should say that we're recording this on Friday the 13th in the afternoon, and we are together in a studio which is rare in this day and age. Well, yeah. Time. Are you, are you, so what is your family policy? Are you in isolation? Are you out and about in the world right now? Great question. We have, as a family, decided to isolate. Uh, I had to have a little negotiation with my husband to come out to see you. I know he's a big fan of you, and I uh, obviously am a huge fan. Wow, I'm honored. Yeah, but we have, we've decided to isolate and also to um, not welcome people into our home at this point in time. So we've said goodbye to babysitters and things like that, because we really feel like we've um, got an opportunity to grow and learn as a family and build some new muscles. I mean, I know I, I know we're going to talk about growth mindset, but that's impressive because my children have been home from school. Their school just closed today, my three mm. kids. And after 40 minutes, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> I don't want to be with you. Can I share a quick story? <laughs> yes. um, so I, I mentioned I was um, I spent the morning with a bunch of hospital executives talking about decisions and how do you make decisions with changing information. And um, we gave my six-year-old some really good expectations for what he needed to manage. And when I came out at noon, he said, Mommy, we did exceptionally well. So well that I decided we both deserved marshmallows. <laughs> so what you were doing, you're virtual. I assume you were virtually spending the morning. Correct. I'm sorry. I was, I was doing a virtual <sighs> class with hospital executives. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we are going to face a lot of adversity and we are going to have so many great opportunities to grow and learn. And as long as we have that mindset of what's on the horizon and how can we make lemonade, Let's let's dive into that because um, you and I were joking before. I mean, I'm very even even before the coronavirus outbreak. I mean, I'm incredibly anxious. I'm very pessimistic. On a good day, I believe that we all hang by a thread. Um, <laughs> I'm always expecting the worst. But you wrote an article about sort of thinking about what is the right mindset for the age of. COVID-19. And and you say that anxiety about something we can't control is only bound to have a negative effect on our mental wellness and physical health. Now, that feels very hard to me. Are you saying more don't be anxious? What are you saying? What is the mindset you're recommending in this scary time? Yeah. And the the article came as I was living um, very close to Biogen, less than a mile from Biogen, Kids in my son's school had spent time at Biogen. We, we should say that we, we were both in Boston, and Biogen was the it was a it's a biotech company that had a conference where like I think seventy plus cases of COVID nineteen emerged from. It was a major hotspot. Fantastic, and it was the hotspot for Boston, right. where most of the Boston cases came from. And and so I kept on thinking, 
you know what? We're all probably exposed or about to be exposed. What can we do to reclaim control? Life happens at an incredibly fast pace. And I want to start to look at what are those moments in time where I can take back a little bit of control, put myself in the driver's seat, give myself a little bit of self-efficacy so that I can make good choices in face of what we're navigating. So to say don't be anxious is um, completely unhealthy. I think the anxiety is real. Mm -hmm. I think we're facing a level of uncertainty that we haven't experienced. Label it as that. This is what is. By putting words around it and talking about it, it actually doesn't increase our emotion. It helps us activate our own internal braking system and actually helps us start to say, okay, that's what it is. What are the choices that I can make around it? Now, to do that, you need to be able to have um, some some level of control. And I think I've shared with you that life is like a donut. And um, I'm actually a pretty healthy person compared to my donut marshmallow metaphors. But I think of the donut hole is your comfort zone. The donut is your learning zone where you're growing and stretching and trying new things. And the outer edge of the donut is where you hit terror's edge, analysis, paralysis, um, and things just become too much. I found this to be an incredibly useful framework when I was going through infertility and everything felt so out of control, the things I wanted the most. And I think of how do I get myself back into the donut from the terror's edge back into the donut? And I like to think of it as a one to five scale. One and two are in the donut hole, three and four are the donut, and five to 10, if you're an anxious person, is where you hit that anxiety. You do you. You figure out what do I need to do to get back in control so I can at least be at a three or a four. Because when I'm in my learning zone, I can actually make conscious choices that are going to be helpful to my family. Whether it's breathing, eating healthy, sleeping, taking some of those actions that will build the physical resilience that will support the mental resilience. What does, what does a learning zone mean and why do I need one? So I, does it make sense when you feel so out of control, you're in a free fall, terror's edge? Absolutely. If you take one step back before that, it's where you're building new muscles. So um, my mother at 83 got married last spring to her 88-year-old boyfriend, and today is his 89th birthday. Mm. And um, she sent me a video of him bench pressing 160 pounds at 89. Um, I did have a little judgment that maybe there wasn't social distancing, appropriate social <laughs> distancing. But there's, a, there's an, a gentleman who's really stepping into his learning zone. He's not bench pressing 20 pounds, 160 pounds, because he's like, I'm going to slowly build up and stretch my capacity with the idea that more strength, physical strength will help me live longer. So that's a physical example, but they apply to all different things. Um, in parenting, it could be stretching your children's comfort zone to try a new food. Mm. In uh, life, it could be trying new things, whether it's posting a blog or building a new set of skills. How about sitting with discomfort? Because, I mean, I think one of the things I think that all of us share right now is that I think we, we're, we're privileged people. Mm-hmm. We, you know, many, many Westerners and Americans have had the luxury, really, of, in our generation at least, a life of great freedom mm-hmm. and great agency. Mm-hmm. And to me, what's so scary is the thought, A, that that will all be taken away. You know, in China, they separated families at a moment's notice if someone was sick or they thought someone was sick. Now, that was a great virus-containing mechanism. But can you imagine, 
living our lives, someone saying, nope, you're leaving now. You can't even say goodbye to your kids because you're sick. So the agency being taken away, the unknown, will my business survive? You and I are both entrepreneurs. Will our businesses survive? What will our finances look like? You know, all the unknowns that we are so uncomfortable with. Why do I have to learn from that? Like, is sitting in this discomfort of being in unknown territory a learning experience for me? Is it good for me? Um, I would say it's absolutely a learning experience. If I could choose for you not to be in this discomfort, I would take that discomfort away from you and every single person listening to this podcast and every single person on this planet. No one wants us to have this discomfort, and it is what it is. Mm -hmm. We can have a choice about how we approach and how we engage with that uncertainty. It's going to happen. So that we have that agency of thinking about how we navigate. I think one thing that helps me in making decisions is what's the right decision for me and my family and having a kind of a lens of perspective of what does that look like? But then also remembering that I'm making decisions that are for the greater good. And we are all making choices and we are going to give up a lot of our freedom and we are going to have moments of thinking, I never chose to live in this house with my husband and kids 24-7. But that's what is. And so we have choices about how we navigate that. Deep breath. Deep breath. We're going to do a, I want to, listeners, we are going to actually breathe in a few minutes with Camille because um, it's, uh, she has a great exercise that I want us all to do, but I want to ask her a a few more questions first. Um, One of the things that I wanted to talk about also is um, when news comes at us, Mm. you know, I I know that, that we could theoretically turn off the news but part of me feels like maybe we can't. And, and many of us in our jobs can't, right? We're working on something related. Many of us have this experience right now where we'll, the news will come at us during the workday and the panic will rise. We get very distracted. Mm-hmm. We, we, may get, we may see a piece of terrifying news the moment before we have to get into a meeting and, and present and be animated on a WebEx. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Absolutely. What do you do? Um. I think your awareness of being at choice around what we consume is important, and you're also appreciating sometimes we can't consume it. I also think this is a really unique situation in news consumption because it's changing so quickly. Recommendations are changing quickly. Things that matter to people we love are changing. So I think for the audience, I would want to give you some really practical tools of how you can reclaim control And I'm a big believer of change your focus, change your physiology, change your language. So change your focus. If you find yourself overwhelmed, pull up your phone and start looking at photos of people you love. Mm. Surge your body with love for people you care about, things that are great memories, and just shift your focus. So that's one thing that you can at least get back control momentarily. Change your physiology. Stand up. Take a sip of water. Deep belly breathings. When we actually change how we're standing, we have a different sense of opportunity to navigate. And I notice you actually, this is obviously audio, but as you do that, you're sort of um, sitting up straighter and pulling your shoulders back. Is, is that intentional when you're talking about this? Yeah. So um, when we get nervous, we tend to shallow breathe at the top of our lungs where we just don't have the ability to bring as much oxygen into our, um, into our body. So when we know is that when we do deep belly breathing, when we're expanding our lungs, and we're holding that breath, it actually, um, there's little filaments in our lungs, and I'm 
psychologist, not a doctor, so that's as far as I'll go on that, um, that we take the oxygen into our bloodstream. So actually sitting and opening your chest and breathing is powerful. You know, I'm a avid yogi. You can stand and stretch. You can do small things that most people around you, if they see you, will think, wow, she's taking control of mm. how she feels. She's actually practicing some resilience in this moment. If you're in a less welcoming environment, I encourage all my clients to bring a bottle of water, and I did today, to have next to you because it at least gives you a couple seconds to collect your thoughts, mm. to really change your physiology, and then give you a chance to be intentional with your language. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about working home because you, you actually opened the show. You're taking a sip of water now. I love it. Um, you actually opened the show talking about your son and how he did such a good job when you were doing a virtual, um, a virtual meeting this morning. You know, how the heck can we try to maintain boundaries between work and home when many of us are working at home? Mm-hmm. And, and, and some, if we may be very fortunate to be able to work from home. So I, I want to acknowledge that our, our spouses are home. Our kids are home. I have three rowdy children at home right now. Their school has been canceled. Um, what's a growth mindset for that? <laughs> How do we set ourselves up for success? Yeah. So there, if there's a couple different ways to slice this. We want to give our kids and our spouses some certainty. We want to build habits. We want to build routines. We want to build expectations about what is going to happen. We also want to give people as much autonomy as possible. Give them the chance to choose on things they can. They can choose which book they read. They can choose maybe what order they do their activities. They can choose what they have for breakfast. Give them back some of the choices and then know what choices you can't give them. So, for example, you know, there's stakes in the ground about cleanliness and sleep. And um, in my family, it's getting dressed every morning. You know, these simple things that are going to be helpful. Um, I also think we need to really reexamine our expectations about work. So my prediction is we're going to see a lot of work shifting. Um, You're seeing this in some of the high stakes labs in Cambridge where they are doing social distancing by having one shift come in from four in the morning to 12 and then another shift coming in from one to nine. So you have less density in the office, more social distancing. But I think spouses are going to end up doing that too. I need to be on this time. You can be on this time and finding that dance. Based on what's happening in Italy, we're going to be home Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. So whether I'm working on Monday or Tuesday or Friday night or Saturday, it's, it's gonna, we're going to see a lot of new models of business. <laughs> and I think just going back to if you're an employer, starting to get clear about your expectations. One of my mantras is clear on the outcome, flexible on the approach. Mm. Be clear what you need. And then let's get creative about how we do that because we, uh, we got a path ahead of us. And what if, what if you don't have the crowded house, you know, and you, you live by yourself and you're, you're working by yourself at home and, you know, that can be really hard. How, how do you, and you can't go, maybe go out and be in community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think technology is one of your greatest assets. I think um, virtual love notes, sending people little emails. Hey, I'm really grateful for you. Um, reaching out to people. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people um, working, co-working by just having a shared like Skype up so they can actually see each other, even though they're not necessarily collaborating. So they don't feel really? as alone. Yeah, it's neat. I think the other thing to put out there, not not to increase anxiety, but to just be aware, um, there's a lot of people who are not set up to work remotely, and they have um, dense housing that is uh, that might not have Wi-Fi. I think being really sensitive to our loved ones, that as stress goes up, as emotions go up, 
intellect tends to go down. There's an inverse correlation there. But we need to be on the lookout for people we love about addiction, uh, people who have, you know, a predi- uh, disposition for domestic violence. We need to really have that greater purpose of caring for our community because it is going to be a stressor. But together, I'm really confident we're going to we're going to innovate and we're going to create and take care of each other. Maybe so, not in person. <laughs> um, I'd love it if you would share a breathing exercise. Uh, that listeners can use if they start to feel panicked. And I will be your guinea pig here in studio. And um, listeners, you you can do this simple exercise with Camille and me. Fantastic. And what I'd love to do is I'd love to just walk people through. It's a four-part process. And I want to give credit to Lauren Papp, um, a dear friend and mentor, sage woman, um, who who really introduced me to this. But it's a four-step process that really can help shift our energy. And um, the first step is really about kind of opening up your body, breathing in light and kind of feeling goodness come through your body. Um, And when I talk about this with my children, I think about letting white sparkly light go down all the way to your fingers. And we can take a deep breath in and feel that light goodness go down to your fingers. Another breath into your belly and abdomen. One more deep breath, and I want you to send that sparkly good light all the way down to your toes. And in the second phase of this meditation, I often um, think of it as collecting the garbage in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, and then just thinking about composting that through our root chakras, through our feet, whether we're sitting, whether we're standing doing a mental scan of your body, maybe noticing where the anxiety is, just collecting it as if you're emptying the trash in your home, sending that out to be composted. And in the third step, I think about it as aligning all of our cells, all of the parts of our being, our mindset, our physical body, our heart energy, thinking about getting it all aligned so that it can just create the best free-flowing energy and set you up for success. With my children, I talk about getting all those Legos lined up perfectly. Just notice where you're a little out of Think, take a deep breath in, and just think about nudging those pieces so you're all fully integrated. Feeling fully aligned. And in the last segment, take one more deep breath. In the last segment, I'd like you to start thinking about what you'd like to create today, now, with the things you have coming forward. The small things like connecting with loved ones, maybe a phone call you're going to make this afternoon, maybe an important business decision. With my children, we do this in the morning. 
and we think about what we're going to create in the day. And in the afternoon, in the evening, we think about doing it and just ending with the gratitude. What are we grateful for in our day? I have no idea how this is going to turn out, but I know that, that this meditation gives me great pause, gives me great hope. And, I don't know, seemed to work for my son and his good siblinghood with his sister today. Dr. Camille Preston, thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for today's show. The second season of The Anxious Achiever will be with you in April. Stay safe.